Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Ross Kemp, and this is The Kemp Cast. In this podcast, I'm joined by guests from all walks of life who all have engaging stories to tell, whether it's about their life their career, or their expertise. I hope that if you listen to this series, not only will you learn something about the guests, but also about the world we live in. Joining me today is Chris Dorr, QC. As one of Britain's top defence barristers, his clients have included bankers, international footballers, murderers, rapists, and members of organised crime groups. Chris is a fascinating man with a fascinating story to tell. I hope you enjoy the show. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Um, We've had lots of very interesting guests so far, but I am really looking forward to talking to you. Uh, I don't think we've had anyone that knows so much about the way the the criminal justice system works uh, in the UK and actually around the world. So it's an honour to meet you face to face. And also, I think you've looked into the eyes of more dangerous people than I have by some way. I'm not sure. I saw you in Juarez and they looked pretty dicey out there. And uh, as you described, someone who just had their head blown off. So I think think you might have been around a few villains in your time. And and of course, you've been to Belmarsh as well, which uh, for some length of time. and, And that's one of the places I talk about in my book. So I don't know. I think we're on a par, Ross. I don't know about that. I, I, I'm looking at the back, real background and my background. I don't think we're in exactly the same part. But look, I, I enjoyed Justice on Trial immensely. Uh, it touches on, on three real major themes. Um, we will come back to those. But ultimately, it's about prisons. It's about the legalisation of drugs. And it's about whether children can be crim, crim, criminals. Is that right? Yeah, and, it, and it's it's about a bigger question because it kind of ends with the with 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 the argument about whether people are good or evil, or whether actually we're all kind of uh, capable of doing very bad things, but we're also capable of doing very good things. And and I, I try and use the book to say that you know let's not let's get out of the habit of saying that some people are bad, and we just need to lock them away forever. Because actually, when, when we start thinking like that, we actually make people like that. And so, so I kind of like bring all of the themes together with, with, with one overarching view, which is let's just stop categorizing people and putting a tattoo of criminal on their forehead for the whole of their lives. Because, it, because that's the reason why often people end up doing bad things for a long time. Because of the cycle. 
because because we as a society we have this you know tabloid mentality about thugs and villains and bad people and, and we we put these labels on people often from a very young age you know even even sort of 11 and 12 year olds are being brought into the criminal justice system and, and, I, and i've always you know suggested that if you if you treat an 11 or 12 year old child like a criminal you may as well tattoo criminal on their head because that's the way society will treat them and that's the way they'll feel so I just think you need, we need to stop doing that. We need to stop treating people as and labeling people in that way, particularly from a young age. And that's that's something. And I've seen the most wonderful human beings in the criminal justice system. And of course, I've seen people who have done really terrible things. But I don't see myself as being somehow a superior individual just because I'm not not one of those that, who's been caught up in that system. Is that part and parcel of your success? Is that you don't? You don't talk down to them in the way that maybe other people they come into contact with in the justice system do. I think so. I mean, I, I went to a sort of very ordinary comprehensive school in the 80s at a time when comprehensive schools were were pretty shit, to be honest with you. And um, and and, you know, many of those I went to school with did end up on the wrong side of the law. Some of them ended up in jail. And, you know, why didn't I? I mean, I, in many ways, to be honest, I think it's just pure luck. I, I, I don't I don't see myself as in any different category of human being to those people who who've ended up inside. And, and many of those, as you know, from your own experience, who've ended up inside have ended up inside because they've got very serious psychological, psychiatric problems, addictions, or they've been, you know, suffer from enormous levels of abuse and trauma in their own lives. And, and you know, those of us who perhaps haven't suffered those things need to not gloat about it. You know, we need to kind of have a little bit of humility, I think. Um, I've got, yeah, I mean, th there's that question I have to ask you, you know, I think you became a silk in 2013. I've got to ask you questions about that. But, you know, how many other silks do you know, um, you know, were brought up around the area of Milton Keynes and, and, and went to a comprehensive? Uh, the Milton Keynes one, I suspect I might be in a minority of one. Um, they're, they're certain, I don't know for sure. I might be doing one of my uh, my, my fellow Milton Keynesians out of their out of their uh, their heritage. But um, so far as comprehensive schools generally are concerned, I mean the stats are pretty clear that overwhelmingly silks are drawn from those who went to private schools, as indeed are judges, particularly high court judges. So I mean a relatively small minority in that sense, although not in the sense that you know most of the population went to comprehensive schools and you know um, and. And, and sadly, most of us don't uh, don't get to the position that I've been lucky enough to get to. Um, so and it's a massive issue in the legal profession that we have a profession that's dominated overwhelmingly by middle class people. Dad was a builder, is that right? Yeah, he was a waterproofing contractor and worked on all the hotels and the office buildings in uh, Milton Keynes uh, for a long time until his knees gave in from working on uh, on hard surfaces, mostly concrete or, or hard floors. Uh, and so he had to pack that in in his in his 40s. Um, but that was what he did when I was growing up in Milton Keynes. And, you know, that's why he, he and my mum moved there in the late 60s, and apart from the fact they couldn't afford a house in London. They, they, they got, they were able to move to Milton Keynes and, and they both worked really, really hard. You know, my dad on building sites and I worked on the sites with him. Uh, summer holidays and weekends and, and, and Easter holidays. And, you know, it was some of the best education I ever had. I mean, one of the interesting things, Ross, is I remember a conversation with my dad when I was working on a building site in in winter i think it was like november december now i don't know if you've ever worked on a building site particularly in the winter but it wow. is not, right it's not fun uh it's not fun in that weather it's not fun with the lifting and, and everything else and i remember my you know my dad actually said to me 
you need to not do this. <laughs> you know, you, 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 there are things you can do in life that mean you won't have to work in these conditions in the winter on building sites, lifting great big blocks of whatever it was we were lifting. Um, and, and that was actually a really important part of my kind of my upbringing from my dad was a learning what hard work looks like, real hard work compared to, let's be honest, what you and I do. And um, and, and and, you know, realizing that there are other there are other opportunities and you don't have to just be stuck with what your parents do. And I, I'm, that's not to disrespect what my dad did for a living, because it was extraordinarily hard. And it was the thing that paid the bills and and kept kept the family in food and kept the roof over our heads. And we had a you know, we had a we had a very comfortable child. We weren't, you know, we didn't have tons of money, but we didn't want for anything. Um, but I think seeing the example of my dad's work ethic has massively influenced the way in which I approach my own work. And has pushed you on to be the success that you are. I don't know if he's still around. Does, is he proud of his son? Yes, he's still with us. He's refusing to be vaccinated because he thinks it's a plot. Uh, to, to poison him uh, by the government um, or someone, I don't know, big business, big pharma. But uh, yeah, so he won't be vaccinated and neither will my mum, who is also still around. So they're in their sort of mid, getting towards, towards their late 70s. Um, and they're in really good shape. And, you know, to be perfectly frank with you, I think they are really proud of where I've got to. Well, I know they are because they've told me. So, uh, you know, yeah, but they're still around and they still follow my cases in the news and they still follow some of the media stuff I do. And, you know, they're really proud about the book. So, you know, it's, it's a different world. They both left school at 14, 15, no qualifications back in the 50s, 60s, when, you know, if you came from a working class family, you were, you were fucked, basically. I've got to ask you this question. You talk about uh, how easy we've had it, and we have had it easy in comparison to our parents, undoubtedly. Um, you had to uh, use a computer, which I would imagine in the school at that time was pretty kind of a basic piece of kit. Uh, you put in your career's information and it came up with two options. Tell me what they were. Yeah, so you're right. It was a rudimentary uh, computer system in 1986-87. Uh, we're not talking about anything too sophisticated, but it was a Q&A. You just put in what you like out of five. You know, do you like to talk a lot? Well, obviously, I'll probably put five for that. But, you know, and, and, and there were a whole range of other kind of aptitudes, if you like. Um, yeah, and the options I were given was barrister or actor. So um, I don't know what you put in, Ross. I put barrister, clearly. <laughs> um, no, I mean, but in, in terms of the fact that the two options, um, is, your, is your success um, the stage's loss, do you think? Uh, no, and I'll tell you why, because I did a bit of that uh, as a student and, and, and so on, and I just wasn't good. I just wasn't very good. Um, you know, and so I was kind of at best average. So, so I think actually uh, nothing's lost, and I don't think EastEnders is any uh, any worse off for not having me in it. Uh, some might say that, that about yours truly. Is. <laughs> but the, the point being, you know, you can have an off day as an actor. Uh, you just go for take two, take three, take four, take five. You're in number one court, the old Bailey. Uh, there is no take two, uh, and your bad day can result in somebody going to prison for an awfully long time impossibly definitely there's a different pressure isn't there there is a different pressure but i think the way i you know if you think about it comparing the two things so as a stage actor you know what's the key you know i'm not going to pretend to know but but as a stage actor the key to it is you you know you really got to prepare you've got to learn your lines you've got to have it a million percent right in your mind before you go out on the stage uh, and 
as a as a lawyer, uh, particularly as a as an advocate or a barrister in court in a high pressure case, the amount of time that we spend to get everything right, not only in our heads, but to get all the documents in front of us organized so that there's not a single page that we can't find when we need it, whether they're actually on paper or on computers or iPads as they often are now. And so that that the way in which you kind of build in the safeguards against making a catastrophic fuck up that sends someone to jail for potentially for, for, for decades or, or, or even a lifetime is, is, is the level of preparation that you do. And, 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 in, in, and I imagine it's the same in your profession, but, but the more experience you get, the less likely that you're going to make a catastrophic error, which is why in our profession you get, if you, if you prove yourself over anything up to about 20 years or so, they appoint you as a QC or a silk. And then when that happens, that's a badge of the fact that you've been able to prove time and time again that you don't fuck up too much uh, and that you do the job pretty well. So I think it's all, whatever line of work you're in, it's about preparation and experience and being good at the thing that you're doing. Um, you know, if you're a surgeon, it's, it's, it's even worse. You know, one slip of the, of the knife and, and someone's aorta is cut. You know, so, so lots of jobs, there's a pressure, but you, but you have to kind of accept that there are errors that are going to happen. But, but the harder you work to prepare in advance, the less likely it's going to be a, a serious one when it comes. Uh, I, I would still maintain that me forgetting my lines uh, doesn't equate to someone doing a life sentence. Um, what makes a good lawyer? If you talk about qualities as a person, i.e. characteristics and character, I, I think there are the, the, the law, like many professions, I suspect, again, that acting is the same, but, but it takes all sorts. There are lots of you know, really different personalities. Well, let me, let me finite it. Let's say criminal defence barrister. To be a criminal defence barrister, I think empathy about the human condition and understanding human psychology is the most important thing, more than anything that you might read in any law book that you ever read. Um, because if you think about it, that comes from two different perspectives. One is I have to understand my clients. I have to know what makes them tick. I have to understand what motivated them to do what they did. Uh, what, what, you know, how I'm going to explain who they are to a jury in a way that a jury will come to at least to doubt whether they've committed the crime. They may be persuaded they definitely didn't commit the crime. That doesn't really matter. I don't need that. I just need them to have a reasonable doubt. So, so having that ability to kind of understand the client and, and present the client's story, their life story, it might be, you might have to go back to the beginning and explain where they started and how they got to the situation that they're in. So that's really, really important, that skill. But you apply the same thing to the jury itself. So when, when you think about me addressing a jury in a closing speech, I'm, I'm speaking to 12 people I've never met before, I don't know. The only thing I know about them is their name, because that's read out at the beginning when they're sworn in, and I know how, what, what their accent was or how they spoke when they, when they did the oath. Okay, so when they when they when they when they swore the oath, I list, I can hear their voice. So I'm, I you know I can hear how they speak. I can I can you know we all make judgments about how people deliver themselves, whether they're shy, whether they're nervous, whether they're confident. But then I've also had the opportunity to to observe them a little bit during the trial. So I might have seen how they react to a particular witness or a particular piece of evidence. So if you think about it, the ability to read people is absolutely central to what I do. And when I'm addressing that jury, not only do I have to be able to sort of broadly read people 
in general, but I have to be able to pitch what I'm saying to somewhere in the middle of the jury, because, because I might have an old lady of 79 years old who, 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 who I might have one particular judgment about, I might be wrong about it, I might have an 18-year-old wearing a t-shirt, I've had jurors come to, to court, young people, with t-shirts saying, fuck off, on their t-shirt sitting in the jury box. So, you know, you can have two extremely different people and somehow or other, I've got to navigate the different sort of makeup of the individuals, the different qualities and characters. And I've got to pitch my argument in a way that I hope appeals to most, if not all of them. And so the more you think about it, the more you realize it's all about psychology. It's all about people. It's what I think, I think it was Al Pacino in Devil's Advocate called Human Moves. You know, it's that, it's that ability to understand people. Um, and so, so, so that I think is the core quality for me. And I hope that I have that quality. And I think some of it definitely comes from having a, what you might call in our world is called a non-traditional background, you know, having been, you know, gone to a, a school where, you know, where we bunked off a lot and where, you know, there was a whole kind of range of stuff that, that, that you kind of experienced that perhaps are more similar to the life experiences of, of either my clients or, 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 or an average person, if such a person exists on, on a jury. One thing I think is really important that you say, and, and you obviously have learned this over the years and, and, and clearly perfected it because of the success rate that you've had. And it is, you say that if you've got through a case without saying too much, then you've done a good job. You explain that to me, because that's something my wife has been telling me to do for a number of years, and I, I failed spectacularly. Yeah, and I bet you, Ross, that if you did adopt my strategy of less is more when it comes to uh, giving your opinions about stuff, you would actually sail through that situation and those conversations with your wife with considerable ease. Did you call them conversations? Did you call them conversations? You are a, diplo a diplomat as well. Exactly. So, well, there has to be a bit of that. But no, so, so my, my strategy when it comes to a case is how can I avoid speaking for the whole trial? Because if you think about it, the reason why a defence lawyer has to say things is because there is something to defend against. So there's, so there's a sort of there's an accusation to which you must respond. Now, the more I can sculpt the case through the way in which I approach the case before the trial, art, legal arguments I may be able to make to, to get evidence excluded, for example, so that the level of direct conflict with the prosecution is minimal. Now, that is the objective. Now, if you think about it, there are two kinds of cases. I, want to, I won't bore you with, the, you know, I can't do Criminal Defence 101 in, 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 in just your podcast. Um, I wish you could. Well, maybe, maybe we should do that as another one. But, um, but, but yeah, because it's a fascinating thing, and I have thought a lot about it. But if you think about this, too, there are two kinds of cases. There are cases where a witness is making an accusation, and it's, and it's a one word, person's word against another. Rape is a classic example, but there are many others. A witness identifies someone and says, this person was definitely the person at the scene of the crime or who committed the crime. Now, in that situation, you can't avoid engagement with that witness. I've got to cross-examine and challenge that witness, and I've got to cast doubt on that witness's evidence. But in our, so, so that's, you know, there, you, there's no avoiding that conflict, although once again, minimizing the amount of challenge is really, really important. So often, just to give you an example, I'll get a client who says, the police are lying about X, Y, and Z. The police, no, they didn't, they didn't find that bag of drugs in that room, it was in a different room, okay? Or, or, or whatever it might be. Or that, they didn't find the mobile phone in that drawer, it was a different drawer. And I, I'll say to a client, well, so what? 
it doesn't make any difference. So why are we going to end up challenging a police officer in front of the jury about something that doesn't matter? It doesn't affect the outcome of the case. And so what I'll often say to a client is we're better not to do that, because if we do challenge it and the jury doesn't believe our side of the story, we will lose the case by arguing about something that doesn't even matter. So, so that's one kind of area of strategy where you try and reduce conflict. But the other is the other kind of case that I guess people are very familiar with is big conspiracy cases. So drug importation cases, for example, which I do, I've done many over the years, and large fraud cases. Now, in those cases, there may not be a witness who comes along and says, you know, your client, Mr. Dawes, is the one that did this. It may be a built up of little bits of circumstantial evidence. You know, the police have built up, you know, surveillance and, and various other things. We may be able to get through the entire trial without challenging any of it and just say to the jury at the end, it's not enough. It doesn't prove that the defendant's guilty. And I, I can, if I can do that, by, I don't sit at the back anymore as a QC, but in, it, back in the day, I would literally try and sit as far from the, the action as possible. Stay out of the action, stay away from it, stay off stage. And then at the end, you pop up and say to the jury, you're probably wondering what I'm doing here. And the reason why you wonder, were wondering that, because there's no evidence against my client, so I've not had to do very much. So, so that, you know, counterintuitively, because I think most people would think that as defense lawyers and as lawyers generally, we can't wait to get up and start getting into the witnesses and cross-examining and, and, and making a big show. When I was 23 years old and started out as a barrister, that's exactly what I did every day. And I thought it was great. You know, I'd stand up and every witness, every copper, I'd, hey, you're a liar. You're not, you know, you never found those drugs there. You found them in the other room. And every single point I would take and objections constantly. But as you mature as a, as a, as a, as a defense lawyer, particularly if you, ha, ha, you know, ha, have a certain degree of success, you realize that silence is golden. The less you say, the more likely your client will be acquitted at the end of the trial. And so the, the noisy lawyers are the ones who are the most worried. <laughs> That's the reality of it. And some might say that about the active profession, less is, is, is always more. Well, you mean, you, you mean the Roger Moore style, where you just use the, you know, you use the yeah. eye. But do, you, do you do that? I mean, do you look at, do you look at your jury when, when the prosecution are cross-examining your client or other witnesses, and when he asks a leading question that you perceive is possibly incorrect, or is, is there an arched eyebrow at that point to the jury, or do you look across to your, your, com, com, you know, your companion, any of that? You're at hundred percent on the money. <laughs> so, so, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a psychological game. So, so listen, we're, you know, whether we admit it or not, and I'm prepared to admit it, we, 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 you know, all of our, when we're in front of a jury or we're in court, everything we do is being watched. You know, the, ju the jury are going to pick up. So you've got to have an incredible ability to, to, to keep a poker face when faced with something that's just happened that's deeply damaging as often happens particularly when a defendant our own client is giving evidence they often fuck it up big time let's be honest so so if they come out with something stupid then the jury will look at me and if i go oh you know like that then obviously that you know the, the jury is going to realize oh this is bad so so instead Ross, what, 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 what we do in that situation is if, if the worst the thing that my client said the most damaging it is the, what, what I do is I'll stand up and say, could, could we just have that again so I can make a careful note of it? Because it could be important. Right. So it looks like I think it's actually a good thing. 
and I'll write it down word for word and I'll go to the jury. Mm, interesting. So, so the jury thinks I think it's good and they're, and they're like, oh, you know. So, so there, are, there are little tricks of the trade like that, uh, which we use sometimes. Um, but the truth is that, yes, we're on show the whole time. So, so we have to, you know, if jurors do look, they look to the barrister for a reaction to something that's just happened because they're looking to see whether or not their own reaction is mirrored in my reaction and of course if it's a negative react if it's something negative for my own client's case I've, I've got to make absolutely sure that my reaction isn't negative because otherwise the jury will just think oh, his own lawyer thinks it's, it's bad going, going back to juries in the book which is again i said absolutely fascinating um justice on trial you go back to ancient greece you talk about rome you talk about you know our, our history, our long history, Magna Carta, etc. But you say that juries, say in ancient Greece, were 70, 80, if not more, so they couldn't be nobbled, right? Hundreds of them, yes. Sometimes they had 500 in a jury, and it was it was just like a great big uh, kind of like theatre. It's theatre. And it was theatre, and it was in Rome as well. I mean, the great Roman orators, Cicero, you know, and the like, were... Were, were, were celebrities. They were massive celebrities of their day. And, and, and you know, as indeed were the, the, the silks of, uh, of Victorian Britain, you know, before TV, before radio, um, before cinema, you know, the Old Bailey was one of the most popular entertainment venues in London. And, and the ushers, it was a prime job to be an usher at the Bailey because you could sell tickets to get into the big murder trials. Um, because it was, frankly, one of the most entertaining things. I mean, obviously, the theatre was popular in, in that era, as indeed it was in Rome and, and, and ancient Greece. But, you know, the, 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 the thing about criminal justice and a criminal trial in, a, in front of a jury is that it's like drama, but actually someone might, you know, at one point would have got hanged or someone... You know, real drama and real life drama, and, and there is nothing more dramatic. And I don't, I don't know if you've been to court much, Ross yourself. I don't, I don't mean that to cast any imputation on you personally, but I don't know if you've been along to watch. I find it fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Well, well, there's nothing more dramatic in my kind of experience of life than the verdict in a serious criminal trial. So when everyone, you know, we all get a tannoy that says that, you know, come to court seven and, and we all go along and the, and the usher, who usually is someone we, we know a little bit because we've got to know them during the trial, they'll be like, oh, it's a, it's a verdict, Mr. Dorr. And you go, oh, right. So you go in and you sit down in your seat and everything goes really, really quiet, completely like pin drop silent. And the jury sort of shuffle in and sometimes they're looking at you, sometimes they're looking at the defendant, sometimes they're looking at their feet and you have no idea. And they all shuffle and they sit down. Everything is quiet. Even if someone shouts out, which sometimes happens, the judge shuts them up straight away. Everything goes quiet. And when the, when the court clerk says, do you find the defendant guilty or not guilty? That moment, Ross, the stomach turn that happens to everybody, and it certainly happens to me after all these years, is something I don't think you will experience very much anywhere else. It's, it's like, the, you know, it's like the, the moment in The Usual Suspects when Kevin Spacey starts limping. It's like that times a thousand. It's, it's like reaching behind you to pull to pull your drogue shoot out and either it comes out or it doesn't come out. But for you, it's always going to come out. For your client, possibly, the impact of that verdict is life-changing. And, and you talk about that. You talk about some criminals, professional criminals, who can take 14 years and go, that wasn't too bad. But you talk about a policeman, he may have been caught for shoplifting, and that's the end of his world. That's divorce, that's no mortgage, that's no job. His life is utterly destroyed. But no disrespect, Chris, for you, you're still going to go back to your house. You're still going to, you know, go to the pub. You're still 
going to have Sunday lunch, aren't you? Yeah, that's true. But I think one of the, you, you asked me the question earlier about what well, the qualities that, that kind of that, that make you a good defensor. And I think if you don't have any, if you don't walk in the client's shoes at all, and you don't have any kind of respect for what for their journey. You, you you're not doing your job. Um, but th there's another element to it is that you know I wouldn't be getting that many decent cases if I constantly lost them all. You go back to that young man that was at the Manchester University of Law, or that man that walked into the Inns of Court. You know, I've walked around there. You feel the history. I like reading the Shardbank novels, which are about the Inns of Court during the, the times of Henry VIII, and even then, you know advocates competing with advocates the complexity of trials that you know just the sheer amount of of knowledge that you have to have just to step in a courtroom be an advocate is immense and you're talking it down i think you know you have to be an incredibly bright man not only to have got to being a silk but then to become a silk and then to go on to have the success that you've had um do people are the qcs jealous of you it's an, it's, it's, it's an interesting because you've raised two interesting issues in, in, in the course of what you just said, which the first is, I can tell you as a student barrister back in my, my late teens, early 20s, going to the Grey's Inn for the first time and dining in hall wearing a gown and so on. It, it was a, a very intimidating experience for me coming from the background that I did and from, from where I came from, having never seen anything remotely like it before. But there was something deeply intimidating to me about that, given my background. Um, and, uh, and I remember those who'd been to public school, which were a significant proportion of those in hall, took to it like a duck to water because they were very much used to dining in, in, in sort of slightly formal, semi-formal sort of situations. And I, I'd never, I don't think I'd ever been to a sort of formal dinner of any kind when I went there for the first time. So, so it was quite, uh, it was quite difficult. And that imposter syndrome, I think, as, as you might call it, uh, is something that I don't think has ever really gone away completely. E even when I was back at Grey's Inn, I had the good fortune to, to, to make a series for the B for BBC One last year, I went out last year, and we went and filmed at Grey's Inn. And, and e you know, even coming back to film a TV show based on my kind of professional career and success and so on, it still kind of felt a little bit, I, I can remember getting told off for reading the newspaper in Hall once, and I kind of never quite escaped the fact that you know, I didn't really understand the etiquette of stuff. So, 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 so that kind of imposter syndrome is a thing. And, but in terms of jealousy, your, your sort of second question, I think over the years, it's something I, I, I have come to kind of expect and understand and accept. And, and, and I, don't, I, I don't have a sense of entitlement about success. It's something that, you, you know, if, if people have worked really hard and are successful, good luck to them is my view. Whereas I think many, particularly from more privileged backgrounds, perhaps, or felt that they deserve to do the cases I was doing, or they deserve to get silk, but didn't. Um, I think that resentment is something which it took me a while to kind of actually even realize was there. Because, yeah. because I didn't expect it. And I found it really, you know, when I sort of hear people kind of talking behind my back or knew that they had been uh, and questioning how I got a particular case or why I was doing so well and they weren't. And, I, I, you know, for a while, that was kind of something that, that bothered me. But to be honest now, fuck them. And you're 50. Well, I'm 51 now. I don't care. That's right. When you know who you're up against, uh, Defence Council... Do you know them as friends sometimes? Do you socialise with them? Are they people that you would go for a beer with after a verdict? That has happened many times um, and is, is, a, is very common in, in my world. So you will often find that you're against someone from your own chambers, for example. 
uh, who's on the other side, or indeed who might be co-defending if, if there are more than one defendants in a case. And of course, sometimes co-defendants fall out and you have cutthroat defenses, you know, where one defendant's blaming the other. And I might be defending one who's blaming another defendant who's represented by someone I know really well, potentially a really good friend of mine. Um, so that phenomenon of, of, of knowing your opponent and knowing others in the case as personal friends, as people you may have been out for dinner with or drinks many times, who may have been to your house or you've been to theirs, that's, that's very common. I think it's one of the things that people from outside of our world find the hardest to kind of grapple with. You know, how do you go to court and go up against them? And I suppose, you know, if you're, a, I mean, we, we, you see it sometimes in boxing or other kind of combat sports, you know, People can go in the ring and do what they need to do without necessarily needing to hate the other person or actually have a sort of personal kind of anim hostility towards them. And in my world, I, I, you know, we, we, we can get on and do our job mostly. And some people do take it personally. You know, if, if you know, I've, I've known barristers, I've been told to fuck off in court by when I was a junior barrister by a top QC who's now a top judge, a, 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 a very, very senior judge. I won't name his name, but he was so irritated by my having the impertinence to object to some of his questions that he turned around and told me to fuck off in the middle of the case. So dropping the F-bomb is not necessarily a good thing to do in a court. Well, he got away with it because of who he was. And it was it was a few years ago. It's probably 10, 15 years ago now. And, and, and perhaps that kind of behavior was was less frowned upon than it would be in our in our current climate. Um, you know, but uh, but it didn't stop him becoming a top judge. And, and, and so number I'm fascinated, as you can tell. So can you look into the eyes of your opposing number when you walk in the first day of court when the jury is being sworn in? Firstly, can you look in, look in the eyes of the jury that day and go, we've got a result. Look across at your, fellow, your opposing silk and go, I've got a result. Or do you go, oh, we've got a problem here. Mm, we might have a problem here. Can you do that? After all the experience that you've had, you get to know the lay of the land, surely. Yeah, you do. And so, so there are certain opponents who are more worrying and dangerous to, to, to the defence than others. And, and interestingly, it may not be the ones that people immediately think. So I guess people's instinct will be the tough ones are the ones to be scared of, the ones that are really going to go for the jugular. But actually, they're, they're, that's not the approach that generally is the most successful when it comes to prosecuting. Prose prosecutors who are seen to be kind of aggressive and perhaps slightly unfair and vindictive, you often get the jury kind of steps in as a counterbalance to that and, and, and says, oh, this seems like it's all weighted against the defendant and this is unfair. And that can end up being the jury is very much, I think, an institution of, that embodies fairness, um, whether it's made up of 12 people from inner city London or 12 people from rural Cumbria. The English jury is a kind of like a, a bastion of basic fairness in my experience so so if i see someone who's kind of really aggressive actually i can really play with that you can roll with that as part of your defense because of course you can appear you know infinitely more reasonable and therefore that that can impress the jury if i see someone who quietly and calmly goes about their business and i know them well and who who actually doesn't get flustered doesn't doesn't need to get aggressive just calmly sets out the evidence and builds all the puts all the different bricks of the prosecution case together that's the one i'm worried about so like in many things in life ross it's the quiet ones you need to worry about uh, rather than the loud shouty ones yeah very true and what about clients uh, i'm fascinated um does it matter to you whether they're guilty or innocent of what they've been charged with arrested for 
No, it, it makes absolutely no difference to me. And it's not something that is some, I ever presume to know. I, I mean, e even though I've got considerable experience of acting in criminal cases and, and have met hundreds and hundreds of defendants, some acquitted, some convicted uh, along the way, some pleaded guilty, of course, in, in many cases. Um, I, I don't presume to judge unless someone does plead guilty. I don't. I don't. I don't presume to make a judgment about about it. Um, and, and you know, and even those who may have committed criminal acts, of course, may have a may have a legal defence. They they may be they may have lacked intention. They may not have had the right knowledge to be guilty of the crime, particularly say in a fraud case or a drugs case, where the defence is often well, I didn't realise that when I booked that shipping container from you know, uh, Caracas to uh, to, to, to um, uh, Barcelona, that, that someone was going to fill it with cocaine. You know, I just thought it was going to be full of toys or something else. So, so there's a whole range of kind of defences available. So, so it, it, the short answer is, and of course, it's a question frequently asked of those of us who defend in serious criminal cases, um, is I see each case, I, the personality involved and the person involved is part of the case, but actually, it's a it's a forensic challenge for me. It's how, how does the evidence, how do I take this batch of evidence that's been served by the prosecution and how do I change the narrative of this evidence to one that's consistent with my client being acquitted? And if you think about it that way, it, the legal system actually isn't about innocence and guilt. The legal system is about whether the prosecution can prove that someone is guilty. That's all it's about. It has no other function, the criminal justice system. It's not an inqu inquiry into the rights and wrongs and who did what. It's about well, the prosecution put forward a case. Is it strong enough to convict? And when you look at it that way, it actually doesn't matter whether someone's guilty or not guilty. What matters is, is there enough evidence to prove the charge? And, and my job is to persuade the jury that there isn't or at the very least, that there's a doubt about it. And that's how I think of it, rather than is he guilty or she guilty, and does he or she therefore deserve my attention and, and deserve a proper defence? Everybody, I know it's a cliche, but everyone is entitled to a proper defence. And, and, I, and I believe in that, and I wouldn't do my job if I didn't. And, and you say everybody. Now, I'm going to put something to you. Um, having read the book, one bit that naturally snapped in was when you talked about the photographs pictorial evidence that you saw of a child that had been tortured right by one of its parents or by both and had died subsequently and you say that that stayed with you i haven't exactly seen those photographs but unfortunately i have seen children that have been hurt and killed um not necessarily in this country but i've seen it and yes, that's that's I think, you know, you can sort of forgive many things, but I think that is something that I find very, very hard. I would never could never possibly forgive. Um, I don't know whether you'd be ever asked to defend someone uh, who was suspected of doing such things that, you know, you talk about, your, you know, people think that people who are silks have a fantastic, crazy life of walking from gin and tonics and cocktail parties to jumping in and out of wigs. But when you have to try to prove the innocence of someone who you wholeheartedly believe is, is guilty of doing something that hints surely that must be the hardest thing i i don't think it is the hardest thing and I, the way i answer to that is if, if if that's hard for you don't become a criminal defense lawyer <laughs> you know i mean if i were a doctor and, and a pedophile came in and needed my treatment i would treat him or her because i'm a doctor and, and if a pedophile comes to me 
or an alleged paedophile comes to me and needs legal services, I will give them legal services because that's what I do. That's my entire existence is for that purpose. So, so if, I, if I'm sitting there thinking, oh, it could be a paedophile, could be a child killer, uh, maybe this is not a very morally kind of like proper thing to be kind of doing, I wouldn't be doing it in the first place. Because, because, because if you if you're not if you can't park your own personal feelings and judgments about potential or about clients or, or, or people who may have potentially committed crimes, don't become a defence lawyer. You know, if you don't like going on stage or in front of a camera, don't become an actor. I mean, it's it's the same principle. It's so basic to what we do that we have to be able to set aside our personal moral judgments and just get on with doing the job and analysing it as a legal case that needs legal services. That's what that's how I think about it, whether it is someone who's alleged to have sexually abused a very young child with of cases of which I've done many, or whether it is someone who is alleged to have defrauded the government. You know, some people say, oh, I could do those kind of cases because I don't really like the government. I don't believe in tax anyway. So or I could do drugs cases because I think drugs should be legal. So I, I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with defending those. But I can't defend paedophiles. Now, now, the minute you start creating those kind of barriers as to which cases you will and won't do, you, you, you can't do the job. You can't you're not allowed professionally. There is a rule. It's called the cab rank rule, which is which means that we have to take whichever case comes our way. It, provided we're properly qualified to do it and experienced and provided that the fee is adequate for the case. We have to do it. We cannot say, I'm not doing those kind of cases because I don't, I don't, uh, you know, I'm too uncomfortable around the idea of, you know, child sex offending or whatever the more sensitive topics are. I can't do it. If you, if you, if that's the way you are, don't do it then. Go and do a different job. Go and be a commercial lawyer where you don't have to do that kind of thing. Go and be a prosecutor if, if you, you know, but then, you know, no one ever says, well, hold on a minute. If you're prosecuting every day, what about when you get one you think is innocent? How do you deal with that? No one ever asked that question. And, I'm, you know, for me, that's far worse. I'd be much more morally challenged by prosecuting someone to conviction that I believe was innocent than the other way round, because the other way round is how the system's supposed to work. It's supposed to be, be the benefit of the doubt is in favour of the defence. And, and that does mean that guilty people are acquitted every single day because there's not enough evidence against them. And, and, and the minute you start saying the lawyers should just pull the plug on them, walk away because the lawyers kind of come to their own opinion about the, the guy or the woman, the whole system's completely fucked. So, so you know, we can't, we, we just can't do that. And, and, you know, I get asked a question by people, just, just don't do the job then if you can't do it. Well, you say, you say you have to be 100% sure, 100% sure it's the life that you want are you still 100% sure it's the life you want? Absolutely. I love it. The job is, it is a, an absolutely fascinating job. And, and, you know, there's a reason why people like you play, play, play people like me on, on TV in so many dramas is because it's so interesting and people find it interesting. And as we said earlier, the actual real experience of court is a million times more fascinating than the, than the best legal drama ever made for television. So, so, you know, it's, it, I, I love it. And I, I fell in love with it as a teenager, just going to court to watch by sitting in the public gallery. And I, and I, and I and just watched this, this, this kind of performance, the drama, the kind of, the, the, what I, I was sitting in the public gallery with the family of the guy on trial and they're all crying when the verdict comes in. And, you know, or if you don't get sort of some sort of thrill from that, then, then again, don't do this job. But if you do, and I still do, then it's, then it's, it's the best job in the world. But, but Chris, I'm going to ask this question again, because I will come back to it, because it's part of my job. There'll be people saying, 
if you defended a paedophile and then they went out, they were guilty, you knew they were guilty, and then they went out and molested a child, maybe even killed a child, how could you sleep at night? Because, because and, I, and that has happened in the sense that I've had clients who have been acquitted who have then gone on to commit a similar or another crime from the one they were committed for, uh, uh, acquitted of. Are we talking about sex, sex offenders? Yeah, including sex offenders. Yeah, I, I had one client who was tried, I think, five times for rape and acquitted every time. I didn't represent him for all five. But these were these were different parts of the country, you know, different women accusing rape. So, 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 you know, most people would have said, OK, well, that looks like you were representing a recidivist sex offender. Uh, and, and I've represented people who have been acquitted of child sex offences and then come back again. And some of that, some of that is really difficult. And I, I think the, the, the toughest challenge in that particular area that I ever faced was when I acted for a man who was charged with uh, sexually abusing his stepdaughter and, he, and one of her friends. I think they were about 10 or 11 years of age. And, um, and, and he, he was acquitted by the jury after I represented him at the trial. They both gave evidence. I cross-examined the two girls and, and, and the jury found him not guilty. And as we came out of court, um, I said the same thing I say to every client in that situation. I said to him, right, well, I hope I won't be seeing you again. And he looked at me straight in the eye and said, well, I don't know, there might be a few more coming out of the woodwork. Now, now that, if you, that sort of almost sort of boasting that he's got away with it and that there may be more victims to come, that was deeply challenging. And I have to say, I found that very, very hard. Um, and so, so, but, but did it stop me going on to do the next similar case? No, it didn't because ultimately it's my job. And, and you know, I, 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 and the jury acquitted him because the, there wasn't sufficient evidence to convict and they didn't believe the two girls. And so, you know, how, who am I to say the jury was wrong? Uh, going on, there's, there's something, and that was, uh, thank you for your honesty there because I don't think many people would be that honest. Um, <laughs> something that I've witnessed myself, whether it be in Barlini, Belmarsh, uh, Pelican Bay, uh, prisons in El Salvador, Mexico, Bulgaria, you name it, um, everybody in prison's a criminal law expert, aren't they? Yeah. And like, whether it's in spider writing, whether it's being typed up, whether there's photographic evidence, everybody's a Sherlock Holmes and everybody, everybody's a top QC. Yeah, and it's deeply uh, frustrating sometimes because, uh, I mean, I have a client at the moment, obviously I can't reveal any details, but, but he, he's in custody for a very serious offence. And when I first spoke to him, uh, he, 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 we, we, you know, I started to explain how the system worked and I explained bits and pieces about how the evidence works. It's a major drugs, drugs case. And, um, and he said, well, yeah, but I've been speaking to some people on the wing and they've told me that that evidence can't be used. And that if I do this, then I'm, you know, and I, and I, and I so I let them, I let them go on and on. And I think I, I talk about a bit about this phenomenon in the book. Um, I, I let them go on and on, and eventually I go, okay, are you done with the, with the, you know, the hearsay, the stuff that you've got from the guys on the wing? I said, just think about it for a minute, right? If they're so fucking clever, right, how come they're in here with you? Uh, so, you know, and usually the, the, you know, clients who, there are some clients who have got the sense to ignore all of that and just say, okay, I know that they're full of it. I know that they've probably got their own agenda. 
Uh, of course, many in prison want someone to talk because they want to grasp them up so they can try and get an early, an early release or get some sort of, you know, early parole or, or get a reduction in their own sentence. So no, most people in prison or many of them are not very trustworthy. So, so you know, but but you're right that there are there are, you know, the, the, the sort of jailhouse lawyer, as they call them in America, is such a common phenomenon. And it's not just limited to America. Um, and it is something that we as lawyers have to kind of work through. And, and, and we, we get clients selling us i mean some clients just won't have it they, they they believe the people on the wing more than they believe their own lawyers because you know frankly not all clients are very bright um talking about the way you're treated and and, and historically you probably go back to when the inns of courts were built clients are not always the most thankful or the most kind or the most reliable types um how do you deal with that how do you deal with the uh, the rudeness the anger yeah it's a very interesting one that because this is another phenomenon that i talk about in the book which is that, that, that i've had clients uh i speak about one of them in the book but I've had, I've had a number of clients who were proper villains i mean you know big time armed robbers big time drug dealers you know capable of murder and many other kind of serious crimes and i've done cases for those individuals where i've come away from it and, and we may have lost the trial and and they are incredibly respectful and polite and and you know don't don't feel bad mr door you know you you know you did an amazing job nothing you could have done more really really grateful for all the efforts you gave me a chance and it didn't work out i get it i've got to do my time okay so that that kind of level of kind of insight decency kind of you know fairness i've had other clients who've been acquitted massively against the odds and often in white collar cases you know fraudsters and, and money laundering and the like and, and we come out of court and they've, they've walked off and not even said anything so you know you just kind of like you know that, 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 that you kind of just get get used to it I, I have no expectation of any client that I represent I, I, I have been humbled by the reaction of clients who have you know sent me notes or cards or even you know just 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 you really really lovely thing. i mean I, I keep them all i've got all of the cards that i've received and the letters that i've received from clients after cases and many, many of them um going back to right when i started i've still got them all and i've got the most humbling kind of letters from people and from their families you know i had a i had an amazing letter from the parents of someone i represented in a murder case at the old bailey and he was acquitted and, and you know the jury decided he acted in self-defense um and they sent me the most wonderful letter about about and it wasn't just about my the way i've done the case as a lawyer but there but but thanking me for the sort of personal time i'd spent with them to explain things and the and the personal sort of side if you like the bedside manner as you might call it all of that so so you, you get these humbling letters from people who you know really didn't have any obligation to to send them and yet you get complete you know ignorance and rudeness from people who who actually you've gone out of your way but but i don't do it for for, for, for the thanks i do it because it's what i do it's my job and so, you know, if people don't respect that or show any thankful gratitude for it, then so so be it. You know, that's that, I'll move on next case. You've ever been threatened? Has anyone said to me, if you don't get me off this case, you're going to die or your family could be hurt or any of those threats? Never. And, and, it's, and I, I don't know many defence lawyers who ever have, because go back to my doctor metaphor. You know, if someone's about to operate on you, as a doctor and do a major operation, the last thing you do is start threatening them and their family, um, because because I think the truth of it is that we are we are the we are in the, the we are the, literally their last line of defence. 
and the, the, you know the, 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 particularly professional criminals as opposed to those who may have get, got themselves caught up in a sort of one-off incident or a crime of passion or a kind of you know just a one-off kind of moment of madness but for those who have made their life about fraud or robbery, which is kind of old school crime now, but uh, you know now we've got DNA and cameras everywhere. Um, but drug trafficking is, is the major form of organized crime in the world, let alone in Britain. And, and those who kind of have become organized criminals like that, you know, they, they, they have a, a level of professional respect for those of us who do our job. And they realize, because many of them are incredibly clever people, as you will have found yourself in, in, in visits to prisons, incredibly intelligent. They may not have huge numbers of exams behind them but they're really bright people but but they but they but, but they understand that have you know you, you mentioned they may not be paying any tax of course the tax on the drug trade and on illegal businesses is getting caught and getting locked up that's the kind of tax if you like they don't pay tax in the normal way so they see their lawyers when they get themselves charged in court as someone who is the one that's going to help them get out of the mess so so the you know the more intelligent and sophisticated the criminal or alleged criminal may be, the more respectful they are on the whole of the legal advice that they get. And 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 but but I've never in 27 years had a client directly threaten me, physically threaten me, or anything of that kind. Of course, if they did, I'd just withdraw from the case. And if they you know made any threat to to, to, to my family, they would be, you know, the, 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 the police would become involved. And it would, you know, so so once again they they, they, they are at least have enough intelligence, even those perhaps who haven't got the most intelligence, have enough intelligence to realize that the last thing they need to do is fall out with me because it's not going to help them. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Let's talk about the book now. And, 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 and we haven't got days, sadly, but you kind of slice it into three chunks about the issues that are wrong with the, the criminal justice system, not only here, across the world mainly, and places where they may be getting it right or bits of it right. So the first thing you talk about, the prisons, 
um, are prisons an outdated form of a anything rehabilitation uh, punishment? Um, do prisons work ultimately? Well, the, the short answer is no, they don't work, and, and, and save in very limited circumstances and for very limited numbers of people, and, and if they are operated in a, in a very specific way. So, so the way I stripped it back when I was thinking about this for, for, for the purposes of writing the book was, what do we want from the criminal justice system? What's the point of it? Now, some people will say punish criminals. Now, of course, if that's your plan, if that's your main objective, then, then perhaps prisons do have some value. But, but I, I rather think that most people, when they give themselves a little bit more time to think about it, would say that the purpose of the criminal justice system is to reduce the amount of crime committed, and in particular, to reduce the amount of violent crime against people, sexual violence or other forms of violence. And if, if, that, if I'm right, that the purpose on the whole is to reduce crime, that means that you have fewer victims of crime, you have less economic damage and harm from crime. If that's your objective, or those, those are your kind of broad objectives, then prison is the most catastrophically unsuccessful means of obtaining, the, or of attaining those objectives that we've ever created. Because the evidence is, is, is absolutely crystal clear that the more you use prison, the longer you lock people up for, particularly when you lock them up from a young age, the more crime as a society you will have, and the more those individuals will go on to commit yet more crime and yet more serious crime. So, so having kind of realized that, and partly intuitively as a result of my many years of working in the system, but partly, as you say, as a result of traveling around the world, uh, not quite as extensively as you have for your many uh, projects. You've done quite well. You've done very well. Not too bad, um, but but partly as a result of that kind of di di direct research for the book, but but mainly drawing on my kind of many years of experience and, and individual cases, the the, the, the conclusion that I reached was was absolutely clear that we just have to shut down prisons as we know them, uh, and we have to ask ourselves how do we actually use the, the the custodial environment, if you want to call it that. Let's stop calling it prison. You know, call, call it detention, call it whatever you want. But how do you use the restriction of liberty to actually reduce long-term offending and reduce the amount of crime in our society? And, 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 you know, the answer is you do the opposite of what they do in the United States, which is to lock many, many people, particularly black people and, and people from other ethnic minorities up from a very young age for a very, very long time. You've got to mention the city of incarceration because, you know, just, just talk about how many people uh, in the United States of America are actually in facilities, whether it be county or state penitentiaries. Yeah, well, so, so, so you, 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 you're, I think the figure that people can, can, can really struggle with or struggle to even conceive of, even in America, is that figure so let's just so in britain we have just under eighty thousand people in prison in a country of you know 60 70 million altogether 70 million um we have, we have about seventy-eight thousand as of today okay that's the highest rate of imprisonment in western europe seventy-eight thousand with our population the united states has 2.3 million people in prison at any one time and going up 2.3 million in a country of 300 or so million. Now, now that is just extraordinary. And, and as I say, as you, as you say in the book, I call it the, the city of incarceration, this group of permanent population of imprisonment, which of course changes day to day, but, but includes millions who are there for very, very long periods. And, 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 it, and it would be one of the largest cities in the United States if it were an actual city.
I think it comes, it just comes after there's New York, I think Los Angeles, Chicago, and it's sort of around there, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's around the Houston level. So, so yeah, I mean, a massive metropolitan city in, 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 in Texas, um, a huge city, um, and, and, you know, bigger, bigger, bigger than any city in Britain except for London. Um, so, you know, we're talking about here, we're talking in America, we're talking about this, this standing army of prisoners, many of them young, but many of them actually old because they have these sentences of life without parole of which they have 60 or so thousand in America. Uh, serving life without parole, some some from the age of 18 or 19. And so you, they have thousands and thousands and thousands of prisoners in their 80s in America who, who may have committed a nonviolent crime 30 or 40 years ago, such as cannabis supply in some cases. You know, they have this crazy third strike law, which was brought in some years ago. It has to be said with the support of Joe Biden, the current president, um, whereby third strike offences of certain categories resulted in life without parole. And, and that included dr minor drugs offences, minor drug trafficking offences, which, of course, were overwhelmingly committed, sadly, by those from ethnic minority communities. And that means that there are, you know, a million plus black black Americans in prison at any one time. Uh, and, 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 you know, most of those have not committed anything that's a particularly serious act. Chris, just explain to me also the fact that, you know, there are so many arrests and we know, I think Juarez, you talked about Juarez earlier, there was really, really kind of bed my head when I first got there to El Paso on the other side, was the simple case that you had a municipal police force, you had sheriff's department, you had the county police, then you had all your, your federal, you had your ICE, you had your FBI, your CIA, you had your alcohol, firearms and tobacco. Yeah. Yeah. And your EA, right? So you had like, I don't know, 12 different law enforcement agencies at different levels of importance or magnitude and border force, all arresting people, all putting people through a criminal justice justice system. And, and that's, and excuse my ignorance here, that's why they use judges, it's to get people through rather than having juries. Is that correct? Yeah. So you're talking about in the US. So, 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 you, so what happens in the US? The reason why. So few cases go to trial in the US, and, and we have a you know, minority of cases that go to a jury trial in the UK. Uh, it's not most cases. Most cases stay in the magistrates court and are dealt with at magistrates level um, by magistrates. But in the US, the reason why they have such a tiny number of people go to trial is very simple. It's plea bargaining. So if you're arrested in the US, you, 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 uh, for, for a, particularly for a serious crime, what will happen is that the prosecutor will say at the beginning, towards the very beginning of the case, and the prosecutor has the power to do this in America in a way that they don't hear. The prosecutor will say, if you plead guilty to, let's say, second degree manslaughter instead of murder, you'll get a 10 year sentence and you'll, you'll serve five years. If you take it to trial as a, cap, as, as, as a first degree murder case, you will get life without parole and you will never be released. So, so you have a choice. You can take five years in jail or you can risk going to prison forever. Now, if you're a 24 year old with a record, let's say, and you've done a bit of time already in prison, you know, guilty or not guilty, you take the deal. And your lawyer will tell you that. Your lawyer in America will say to you, particularly a public defender who might have 150 cases on, 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 his, uh, on his books, he will say to you, the client said, I didn't, I didn't do it. I was like 15 miles away. I had nothing to do with it. And the lawyer will say, it doesn't matter because are you really gonna risk life without parole? 
for the sake of doing a five-year bit that you can do, that you'll, you'll be able to do and get out and you'll still be only in your 20s when you get out, it doesn't matter if you're innocent or, or not. You've got to take the deal. And so that's why so few cases in America end up going to trial because the difference between what you get on a plea bargain, on a deal, guilty, not guilty, doesn't matter, or what you get if you take the case to trial is so massive. Now, under our system, we have a, a one-third discount for pleading guilty. So if you would have got 15 years, if you plead, if you had took it to trial, you plead guilty at the beginning, you get 10 years. So it's a discount, but it's not the difference between five years and the rest of your life. So the press, there is pressure to plead guilty. And I have to say, it's increasing pressure to plead guilty here at an early stage. And they've tried to make you plead guilty right at the beginning before there's any, even any evidence being served. Also, Chris, isn't it true that a lot of people who get 10 years serve five? Most people do. So, 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 so but, but, but again, there's a misconception around that. So most people assume that that means that 10, so a 10-year sentence is really a five-year sentence. That's not true. Because once you're released on a license at five years on a 10-year sentence, you're on license until the whole of the 10 years is up. So if you, I mean, it's a slight exaggeration, but if you, you know, park on a double yellow line or look at someone in a funny way, uh, you, you could be recalled on the license and made to serve right up to the end of the 10 year sentence. So the way, the way the license system works is just a way of trying to ensure people behave themselves once they get out. So it's a myth, you know, when people say, oh, they should serve the whole 10 years. But if, if they serve the whole 10 years with no license afterwards, they'd come out of prison with no control at all. And that wouldn't make any sense. So, so the system kind of builds in that extra period on license to try and give an extra degree of control once someone's released. And for people to catch up now, we've suddenly moved from across the pond back to the UK. Do you think the license, the license system works then? No, not really, because the, pro the problem is the same problem that, that we have throughout the criminal justice system. So our prisons are extremely poor at, at preparing people to be released. And we have very little in place when people are released. One of the most shocking statistics is that, say, prisons are targeted to have somewhere for the prisoner to be released, uh, to, to live after they're released. Only 17% of prisoners had somewhere to go and stay the day they were released from prison. And, and another target was that they should have a job to go to after their, after six weeks of release. They should be in employment. 4% of those released from prison, and this is the most recent stats, just at the beginning of 2021, 4% had a job six weeks after they were released. And we wonder why people come out of prison and go on to commit more crime and go back to living the life that they did before, often involving drugs, often involving uh, you know, selling or other forms of um, criminal behavior. It's hardly surprising. So, so the license system doesn't work. Partly because the prison system didn't work to prepare the person to be released in the first place, but partly because we've got no, we're not, we're not doing anything with people when they get out. The other issue that I've witnessed um, and I saw really, really close up was in, in Barlini, um, which people don't know is sort of the major prison for Glasgow, is that people are going back into the exact same environment, particularly short term sentences, but people who receive short term sentences, they're going back into the exact same environment that caused them to commit crime in the first place so whether it's drug related whether it's the home life or the lack of home life whether it's a lack of somewhere to live whatever those things or the mixture of all those three because they're going 
exactly into the same situation, the end result, so nothing changed. So it's it's a, it's a, it's an awful cycle, isn't it? And, and and it's not just prison, is it? It's societal, isn't it? Yeah, and 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 it's not surprising. I mean, as I say, if if you release somebody with fifty quid or whatever they get, and a bag of the stuff of clothes that don't fit them anymore, and nowhere to live, then what are they going to do? You know, and mo mostly they've lost touch with their family if they've done any length of sentence. You know, if they've done more than a year or two, often they don't. They've not had a visitor for a long time. They don't have any connection with their. You know, their partners moved on and and, and found a new partner. They they've not had any contact with their children. Their parents even may have abandoned them though although it's the mums as you'll have seen are the ones that tend to keep coming back for visits um more, more than anyone else in, in the family but the truth is that unless they're lucky enough that they you know their mum has got a room for them and they've got somewhere to live most of them got nowhere to live so they go back to their associates the people that they were hanging out with before to get somewhere to live and also to get a bit of food and often to you know frankly to get high pretty quickly after they get out of jail and so yeah, I mean, it's a vicious circle and it's one that we we are allowing to happen. And, 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 and yet people are shocked, you know, what, that when someone comes out in that situation with nothing and then the, then the only way that they find to, to make ends meet is to go and uh, commit some sort of crime, steal something or sell some drugs. There was a case, there was a case at Balini that a guy literally said to me, I'm going to walk down to the corner shop. I'm going to steal a bottle of whiskey, drink it, then I'm going to throw it through the window of the newsagent. So I'm back in prison. So I've got somewhere to sleep tonight. Now, I'm not saying that he is indicative of every person that leaves, leaves Barlini, but there is a certain element in our society that treat prison as home. As a respite. I mean, I, I, I describe what, what just such a person in the book, Michael, who, who is not his real name, but a client of mine who'd been in prison for over 30 years by his early 50s. Um, and on and off, in and out, in and out, never doing anything massively serious. But he had gone and done the most stupid robbery you've ever heard of, going in with a banana into a pub in his pocket, done, you know, and 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 then just, all he got was a bag of change because they weren't even open properly yet. And so you know, and he and he left this trail of change behind him for the armed, armed police to follow when, when when they turn up, you know, and 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 he 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 was more than content with the respite of being in prison, because he saw it as a respite from having to deal with the world. As a society, for me, that is a, should be a cause of shame. We should be saying to ourselves, you know, we've got a society where many, many the huge number of those in the prisons came through the care system as children. Um, and, 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 you know, many of them damaged by having witnessed violence or witnessed death. I mean, I know you spoke to Daryl Laycock, a former client of mine, on your on your podcast, and I listened to it actually. And uh, you know, he talked about having there being thirty people he knew who'd been murdered, and he rightly pointed out most people haven't. I think it was sixty, in fact, directly or indirectly, that he knew who'd been who'd been murdered. And he said most people don't know that many people have died of natural causes, you know. And and that's the truth of it. That's that that's the sort of people that are in prison that they've witnessed murder, death overdose destruction in their lives often from a very young age and, and our prison system just brutalizes them more and makes them even more likely to reoffend. so we've just got to stop doing it ross but there's no there's no sign that we're going to because the, the government are announcing more prisons and longer sentences we've got the you know the new crime act out this week longer sentences keep people in prison for two-thirds instead of half of their sentence which just means an ever-growing prison population and more and more crime so, you know, if, if that's what we want, then we carry on the way we are.
Very quickly, you do touch on the book about what the future might look like, and it may not be about walls uh, with, you know, razor wire on them. There are systems, and I've looked in the news today, you know, they're talking about a new tagging system, even one that can detect whether you've been drinking and no doubt whether you've, you've taken drugs. And also facial recognition. So people who have, you know, minor crimes, not violent, not sexual, you know, they're not habitual, going to burgle every house in the area that they live but people have done minor crimes but there's a calling that those people may be tagged and i think do you not think that that's heading sort of in the right direction the compass might not be the the, the way that everybody would like it to be but it's it's changing or not well it's not it's not i'll tell you why it's not changing it's one of the one because the reason i've just given which is that the government has announced a crime bill which increases the length of sentences increases maximum sentences, increases the use of whole life sentences, um, all, all, almost every sentencing guideline, and they, they are one of the sort of scourges of the system are sentencing guidelines, but almost every sentencing guideline which tie judges' hands to a very sort of narrow range of sentence, over the last 20 years, each of them has, has seen the sentences going up and up and up. So the direction of travel is very much in favor of longer sentences for more people, building more prison places, even for women who, who are in the main in the prison system, the victims of domestic and other forms of violence and abuse themselves. So we're talking about imprisoning more women because they want to build more, more prison places. So we're just, well, I'm afraid to say, uh, you know, we're not seeing the phenomenon of, of a reducing prison population, save for the short-term effect of, of COVID, which has reduced the prison population because not so many people were being arrested because the police were, you know, people on lockdown and so on. Uh also, let's spare a thought for the people whether you agree that we should or not, because I think there are some people who genuinely need to be incarcerated for, for the safety of, of the rest of us. But uh, most people, for instance, in Belmarsh, I believe in other, other prisons across the UK have all been in lockdown since February of last year. And, and that's been not only difficult for the inmates, but also difficult for the prison officers and, and for the governors and for everybody else involved. But moving on, one thing we do know, there is a connection. Prisons have drugs in them, no matter how hard or how well you're searched, they get in. Talk about Daryl Laycock losing 60 of people, the 60 people that he knew personally. Most of those would have been, and I think Daryl would not deny this, but probably had involved in the drugs trade in some way. You talk um, in the book about legalising drugs. Talk me through that. That's your second chapter, I believe. Yeah, so, so legalisation of drugs, to me, is the most obvious easy win in terms of reducing harms from drugs, but also crime generally in our society. So, so we, we started to adopt the current regime of serious criminalisation and penalisation of drug offending in the early 1970s. Before that, and this is one of the most frightening statistics, again, I don't want to exaggerate, but before the Misuse of Drugs Act came in in 1971, in the late 1960s, we had around a thousand habitual heroin users in Britain. And they got their heroin from a doctor who prescribed them the, the dosage of heroin that they, that they, they took. That was, called the, that was called the British, was it called not the British? The British method, yeah. And it was, it, absolutely. Uh, and it was, it was a, a kind of pragmatic approach to heroin use seeing heroin as something that you know uh, was not something inherently immoral or illegal uh, sorry immoral in its own right but but part of a medical condition that needed to be uh, given people need to be given support so we had a thousand then the misuse of drugs act came in in 1971 
by the early 1980s, that's a decade later, we had 300,000 heroin users, addicted heroin users, all buying their heroin from dealers, all fueling a massive increase in organized crime, the likes of which had not been seen in this country and, and in, the, in America, where they introduced similar legislation at the same time, hadn't been seen since prohibition. Uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And we're still, we've still got it now. We still have this massive number of heroin users, crack users, uh, habitual cocaine and amphetamine users and other drug users, as well as a whole range of other kind of artificial and synthesized substances, all supplied by an illegal market, which makes billions a year and kills hundreds and hundreds of people a year uh, and causes the utmost misery in so many communities. If we were to, if we were to legalize, license and regulate the supply of drugs, as I saw happening with uh, heroin in Switzerland in the most wonderful clinic, uh, you know, clean, the users could come get some heroin in clean, sterile conditions and then go to work or go to college, not go rob, rob, rob someone in the street and not go and break in someone's house to nick their, to nick their PlayStation. You know, the, 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 the heroin problem in Switzerland, having been one of the worst in the world, is now one of the safest places to be a heroin user and has one of the lowest rates of drug-related crime on earth because they have adopted, no, they haven't gone as far as I would go, but they, so far as heroin is concerned, at least, which is one of the major problem drugs in many societies, they've at least gone a, a long way towards the model that I would advocate. And they've seen this massive reduction in all the harms associated with drugs. And we just have to do it. But I see no sign of it here either. Uh, how would you implement it here? I mean, I, I know that Switzerland had a massive problem, but it's not the same country. We are a different a different we're different numbers for starters. We have different crime rates. We're, I think I would suggest that we're probably more violent than the Swiss are. Um, it, it seems to have become so, so much a part of society now, uh, the criminal element, and in some ways the attraction to be involved in that, whether it be street gangs, whether it be county lines, whatever it may be. And for other kids, there is no option apart from to be involved in that, it would seem, if, if you talk to some of those young men that I've spoken to. So, you know, it's it's all well and good. We could say that, that we have to we have to adopt the Swiss system. But how do you impl implement that when not only is there probably it's going to be very, very hard to do so, there's also an unwillingness to do that from, from politicians and from members of the public. But the, the, the harder of your two objections that you kind of just, just put up for me to deal with are, is public opinion and political opinion, because the truth is that on the ground, the implementation of licensed and regulated drug supply isn't really that hard. It requires political will and it requires public support. And those are the two areas at the moment where we have none. And, and it's one of the mo most important motivations for me of writing and speaking about the book is to just to try and communicate the insanity of our approach to drug prohibition. It is absolutely no different in principle to the insanity of American alcohol prohibition, which resulted, as you and many people know, in an explosion of organized crime around the supply of alcohol, huge levels of violence and competition for territory and everything else. Exactly the same things that we see day to day on the streets of London and Manchester and Birmingham. That 
that that high level of serious violence and exploitation of, of vulnerable people, particularly children. Uh, I mean, you will be aware of the county line stuff of getting young children to take drugs from London and the bigger cities out to the to, to the outlying communities and, and the suburbs and, and rural areas. All of that goes if you introduce a systematic and well-resourced licensed and regulated supply chain. And, and, and if you take away the commercial value of dealing and selling drugs, then the market disappears, the illegal market disappears. What you don't do is, and, and although it's had some success in, in Portugal, is simply decriminalize drugs for personal use. Because if you do that, the criminals are still in charge they're still the ones responsible for the importation of the drugs and all of the harms that you saw in Juarez, which are directly connected to supply of drugs through, through the city into the United States. So, so that all of those harms come from prohibition. If the United States or the UK government was buying up the supply of coca leaf from the source countries and paying actually probably a slightly higher price than the cartels pay for it, they, we would still be able to see drugs being supplied to people safely in terms of at least people would know what they were getting, they would know how pure it was, they would know how much exactly they were taking, and they would get it at a price which meant that they didn't have to go out and commit robbery or other crime in order to, 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 to get the drug. If we did that in a systematic way with licensed dispensaries up and down the land, we would see a, a halving, if not a more than halving, of our crime rate, of our violent crime rate, and of our prison population in the course of probably a decade. And that is, that is, the, that is the objective. That's the most important thing we could do to reduce crime and violence in our society. Is that realistic, Chris? Is that utopian? Is that realistic? It, it, it's realistic in the sense that it would work if we did it. Is it realistic in the sense that any politician is going to stand for election on a platform of national dispensary network for the supply of heroin, cocaine, amphetamine, ecstasy and other drugs? No, because sadly, both the media headlines and the political realities are that politicians who stand for office on a platform of cracking down on drug crime, increasing sentences and increasing the number of prison places for drug offenders are the ones that get elected. And, and any politician, particularly leader of a national party, the Labour Party or the Tories, who, 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 who sought to put forward an argument for the sorts of policies I advocate would never be elected. And why is that? Why is that? Why is that? It goes back in time. I mean, the reason I, I talked in the book about the sort of ancient history of drugs, you know, of 20 million years ago, of this sort of, you know, the idea that we as a species may have co-evolved with the consumption of psychoactive plants. You know, it may have been a part of our evolution that we actually started to, 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 to chew on coca leaves or other psycho, psychoactive plants, particularly in Central America and South America, that that may have actually helped leaps of evolution because people were people thought of doing things they wouldn't have thought of doing if they hadn't taken a drug. Rather like, you know, many artists and writers and, and, and musicians and other creative people have said, well, you know, it's the taking of the drugs, it was smoking of weed that maybe enhanced some of the creativity of the Beatles and some of their greatest work. As a species, it seems to me that we have always kind of exposed ourselves to these to these substances. But but the problem we have is that that since a very long time ago, and particularly over the last century, that kind of moralistic approach and the moralistic attitude to consumption of either alcohol or drugs, but particularly for reasons that, that escape me, 
most people say, well, alcohol is legal, so we, that's different than cocaine, which is prohibited. Well, it's not different. It's exactly the same principle. It's just a mind-altering substance and a, and a chemical that alters the body's function in a way that distorts perception. For me, there's no difference between chewing on a leaf between, between, between taking a substance that's been created in a laboratory in Holland in the, in the form of MDMA or whatever it may be, there's no difference. The, the, the only difference is how you're going to, uh, what the supply chain looks like and whether that supply chain causes ancillary harm like violence and death. And, and sadly, people have been persuaded that drugs are the problem rather than prohibition. And, and the minute that people realized in the United States that prohibition was the problem rather than alcohol, they, they, they scrapped prohibition. And since then, the alcohol trade is not a source of particular harm in the form of organized crime and other forms of violence, whereas the drug trade is. And it's the same here with tobacco, although it's a very interesting tobacco still has a, a significant illegal market in the prisons it does oh it does in prisons but it does outside prisons as well and for very simple reason that the tax on tobacco is so high that there's still a market for illegal imports of tobacco because you can get packets of tobacco for a tenth of the price in parts of eastern europe and if you can get them into the uk you could still make a profit you can't do that with drugs if you, if you were to license drugs you can't sell them at an enormous price that lets criminals carry on trading because no one would ever go in the license dispensaries if they were priced out of the market and drug dealers could supply the market more cheaply and more efficiently you talk about the chewing gum that winston churchill and i have to say allegedly because who might who know might come after me winston churchill chewed cocaine chewing gum that he occasionally offered to Queen Victoria in the book it says that I have to be very clear about that but the point being that that was then this is now things have changed the laws have changed and also if 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 things were legalized and uh sorry and, and the criminalized criminal element was taken out of it you'd be out of a job wouldn't you that'd be great and then I could just write more books I'm being flippant. I'm being flippant. No, but you're, you're right. And it's a good point. And, and it's no different to the argument, you know, if there was a cure for cancer, then oncologists would be out of work. But would that, you know, they wouldn't be sad. They'd go, they'd go and do something else that was useful in the world. And, you know, and, 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 and if, if we were able to reduce crime so much that we didn't really need criminal defence lawyers, which isn't going to happen anytime soon, but if we did that, I'd be over the moon. I would use my talents, I hope, for something that's actually not such a wasteful um, use of my time as what I do now. Because although it's important in our society to have a criminal justice system that functions, it's deeply damaging to our society the way that it works. So I'd much rather that I didn't have to go to work and defend people in big drugs conspiracy cases because there weren't any. I would much rather I could apply my talents to, 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 to something different and something that actually maybe does benefit society in the long run better. Something uh, that, that's obviously I think, very important to me, having travelled around the world, but also sort of like, you know, I'm interested in what happens to young people who, who fall foul of the, the law uh, at an early age. Um, you say children are not criminals, cannot be criminals. I just I think it's one of the, the real abominations of our society that you still have 10 year old children being taken into criminal courts and tried uh, for criminal offences. And, and uh, you know, anyone, you don't have to be a parent, anyone who's ever met a 10-year-old knows that a 10-year-old is not developed enough to have an appreciation 
of the gravity of their acts when they may do something, even if it is something on the face of it that's quite damaging and harmful. I know 40-year-olds that don't. Well, exactly. No, you, you, you make a very reasonable point. It's not just 10-year-olds. In fact, the evidence is that up until about the mid-20s, people are still developing their full appreciation. And, and in some cases, as you say, maybe some of us never grow up. But, but the truth of it is that, that young children don't belong in the criminal justice system for two reasons. One, they just don't. Uh, and, uh, uh, it's as simple as that. You know, I mean, in, in Luxembourg, as I, as I mentioned in the book, you know, they, they, they've raised the age of criminal responsibility to 18, which is the same age as you get the vote. And that seems to me quite fair. If you're, if you're not responsible enough to vote on criminal laws, then why should the criminal laws actually be applied to you? If you, you, know, you, you you're assumed at the age of 10 in Britain to understand things. You're not going to be able to vote upon for another eight years. So, so that, that you know, it, se it seems to me sort of wrong in principle. But, but even if you set aside the morality of criminalizing children, one of the biggest contributors to crime in our society is the criminalization of children. So by, by taking children into courts and sending them to youth young offenders institutions from the age of 12, 13, 14 onwards, those young people are overwhelmingly going to become the adult criminals and the adult prisoners of the future. And we've created them. We've chosen to treat them as criminals, as children, and we sit back as a society and the Daily Mail and all the other headlines are, you know, young thugs need to be locked away, give them longer sentences, give them more time inside. Well, go ahead and do that and then wait for them to come and rob you as an 18 year old or a 28 year old as they inevitably will. So, so A, it's wrong and B, it leads to more crime. Now, if something's morally wrong and leads to more crime, stop doing it. What about those extreme cases? And we know where, where young children have abused brutally abused and then murdered other children what do we do with people young young children that do things like that i'll tell you what we do ross we take responsibility for them because children are the responsibility not only of their parents in my opinion and of course they are although many don't have parents with the qualities or the capability to take that responsibility so my view of any child in a society as wealthy and developed as ours and one which claims to be a society of fairness and justice, we as a society take responsibility for the children who, who commit acts which would otherwise be criminal, in my view, if they were adults. And we say, how do we help those children to become law-abiding adults and go beyond the consequences of their childhood actions? And of course, how do we protect the public? So, so you know, a, ch a child of 15 in particular can be dangerous. Of course they can. They can be at risk of committing a sexual crime or committing other forms of crimes of violence. And so, you know, I'm not saying you give them a get out of jail free card and they're allowed to just do anything they want with no consequence or with no restriction. But we should be looking at it as they do in many other countries, which is, you know, as a matter of law in Luxembourg, again, no child can be deemed to be a criminal, can be given a criminal record or treated as a criminal. But if a child commits an act that would be a crime in the uh, hands of an adult, they can still be held in secure conditions. They can be put, placed into a secure school, which does have perimeter security. They can't just leave and go, go, go uh, wherever they like. But they are, it's a school, and its only purpose is to educate them and to see them into adulthood 
as a law-abiding citizen. And that does mean intensive therapy and treatment in some cases, whether it be psychiatric or, 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 or other forms of uh, drug, drug treatment or otherwise. But you see them as the responsibility of the society we live in. We're responsible for those children. I'll take my share through my taxes of paying to, to, to treat children properly when they break what would otherwise be the criminal law. And we all should. And I think it's a mark of decency in a society that society takes responsibility for children when they, when they fall below the standard that's expected and when they commit harms. We take responsibility, we deal with them, as we do our own children. And as we should our own children, as a society, we need to look after the children of others who perhaps haven't had the same benefits that we did. Well, cost money. It costs a lot less than our current system. I mean, if you if you were to adopt any of my proposals in the book, so massive reduction in the use of prison as a sentence, legalizing and licensing drugs and taking children out of the criminal justice system, you would in the course of a few years, you would find that there was a net, a huge net benefit in the billions to the taxpayer because prison is so expensive and so uh, negative in its outcomes. 50,000 or so on average a year to keep someone in prison. Uh, we're keeping some people in prison for 10 and 20 years just for drug crimes. Uh, and, and so there's a huge opportunity cost of the, of the waste that that represents in terms of their contribution to society. Um, if you stop doing all of that, you save millions and millions and billions a year from the budget it takes a little bit of upfront investment to get there i accept that particularly around youth services and youth and, and, and young people um but all but but actually the, the the licensing of the drug supply chain would be relatively low cost to introduce and the, the the savings in terms of police time alone just think about it the amount of police time that's spent on drug offending and drug offenses all of that resource could be spent on, you know, helping people who have been burgled or raped or who, whose children have been murdered, who, who are currently let down by the There's hardly any spending on victim support in this country. So stop wasting on things that don't work, like imprisoning children to make them more criminal and start spending on things that do work, like their education. Well, that's that's in essence really what the book's about. You talk about the money that's available now to to. to young lawyers young barristers that's decreased massively and not just not just not just barristers but all the whole criminal justice system has seen the largest single percentage cut of any ministry uh, under the austerity regime of 10 years or so ago and over the over the whole of the period since so so the the, the cuts have been extraordinary um, and so you have young uh, barristers coming into the profession, as I did at the age of 23, who can't make as much as someone who's a relatively junior uh, kind of supervisor at McDonald's. Now, that, that's not to underrate the value of being a supervisor of a supervisor at McDonald's, because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a hard job and they work long hours. But the idea that we can't even get to that level of income for someone who's been in law school for three or four years or more and has been training for five years or more and who is going to represent often vulnerable people in really difficult criminal cases from the very first day that they can't pay rent. They can't pay rent in most parts of London. They can't, they, they, you know, they have to, they, you know, we are seeing a, a huge net drain of talent and, and of ability and numbers away from the criminal bar 
and towards other other parts of the profession that are better paid and the consequence for our society is that the quality of justice is massively decreased uh, and, and the quality of the outcomes get worse and worse and, and injustice increases because without sort of bright young lawyers coming in to be the next generation of criminal defense lawyers or prosecutors for that matter where are we going to be in 10 or 15 years as it's going we will have a barely functioning criminal justice system if we have one at all we'll have something but who knows, we might be have computers trying people. It might all be done by a computer and algorithm. The way we're going and the cost-saving measures and the lack of interest on the part of the government and indeed most members of the public is leading us to a, a third-class, third-world criminal justice system. Do, do you think that that is the case, that there is apathy from the public when it comes to, 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 to the way the criminal uh, justice system works? And also, those longer sentences that are being advocated presently to, to many people, th those people have committed crimes, they should be out of society. They should not be on my streets. I do not want them on my front door. Does that create more of a them and us than there is already? Yeah, well, I mean, that's why I wrote the final chapter about, the, about there not being any such thing as good and evil, um, because I really wanted to kind of deal head on with that, that tabloid kind of mentality of categorising certain people as just very bad people that need to be locked away. Um, but to answer, to, to, you know, to answer your, 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 your questions, in terms of apathy uh, amongst, amongst the public, I think there is a passion for criminal justice. It's just misdirected uh, and, and it's in favour of the wrong things. Um, people think they want punishment and, and people sort of on, a, on an emotional or, or, or a sort of gut level really do want punishment. But at the same time, they also don't want more crime and they don't want to be more likely to be raped or murdered themselves. So I think the problem is information. And the problem is the communication that, that comes from politicians is, is, is so factually inaccurate and so wrong, that, but, but sadly does resonate. You know, when Priti Patel talked about making criminals quake in their boots and, and increase sentences and so on, quake with fear, I think is the expression she used. Um, you know, people respond positively to that. They think, yeah, sounds good. She, she's really going to crack down on these people. But what, what I think the problem, the disconnect is they don't realise that these so-called crackdowns, they, they, they haven't extended that logic to the United States where crackdown after crackdown, increase after increase in sentences leaves you with 2.3 million in prison and the highest rate of violent crime in the Western world. Uh, you know, you, you Juarez is, you know, is, is one of the most violent cities on earth, but there's parts of America, particularly parts of Chicago at the moment, where the death rate is almost as high as it is in some of those places. I've been, I've been there, I've been there and seen it. You know, it's outside of Chicago and other parts of Chicago. So, and that's a country that does exactly what Priti Patel's trying to do here, lock more people up for longer than anywhere else in the Western world, has the largest prison population on earth by a mile. Uh, and And, what, what, do we want to go there? Is that where we want to end up? We want half a million people in prison in Britain to match the Americans? And do we want do we want the streets of Manchester and Cardiff and Glasgow to be death zones like they are in many American cities? If that's what we want, then let's, let's buy into the, the, this whole idea of cracking down on crime. I would say one of the things that we don't have the right to carry arms in this country or, or the access to them, you know, in terms of weapons. I mean, we, we know that we have an issue with knife crime, but... Thank the Lord, we don't have um, shops that sell that sell guns. Um, um, Chris, I, I think we've, we've sort of covered the book now. There are some like let's lighten it slightly. 
I just want to go through some of the notable cases. Um, you've, you've, look, you, you've represented people like John Terry. Uh, yeah. You've, uh, you know, chief constables. I think there's a number, number of police officers that you have represented. Yeah. And, and, and it bears out what you, you've said earlier. It doesn't matter what that person's crime allegedly is. You represent all people, all manner of people from all, all manner of walks of life and all manner of, of alleged crimes. Um, tell me, because a guy that's carrying an AK-47 assault rifle around and using it, um, I, I know his nickname was Tunde, so Alatunde Aditore. Tunde, yeah, that's how he went by, yeah. Talk me through um, how you, how you uh, represented him, how you defended him. Tundi was one of the most respectful clients I've ever had. Uh, you know, he, he, was, he was incredibly polite. Every time I went to see him in the high-risk uh, Category A wing at Strangeways, uh, he, 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 was, he, was, he was incredibly calm and polite. And, and indeed, after the case was over, and I kind of talk about it a little bit in the, in the book, um, he got eight life sentences. Uh, and he's actually out now um, uh, on, on parole. But, uh, but he got eight life sentences for, for shooting five people and trying to shoot three others. Um, and um, after he was sentenced to so his eight life sentences, you know, again, he went out of his way to be appreciative and grateful for, you know, it was a very hard case. It was, it was, it was in the public eye. There was an enormous amount of security around the case, armed police everywhere, armed escorts backwards and forwards to strange ways for him to go to trial every day. But he, he went out of his way, despite being kept in those conditions, to be incredibly polite and respectful to me. And so, in a way, that just shows you, doesn't it? I mean, he, he, you know, he, he had had a, 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 a you know, pretty appalling life and had done appalling things. Um, and, and yet he was able to maintain a sort of, a, a, he, 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 the, the weird thing is, Ross, you have these connections. If you don't make moral judgments about people in the same way that perhaps the, the tabloid editors do, you know, he and I were exactly the same age, or we still are. You know, you know, he was born, I think, a few months either before or after me. And, and you know, I, I just wasn't sitting there thinking, this, this, we're, we, we, we come from a different planet. We did come from very different backgrounds. You know, he hadn't had the good fortune to have a hardworking father like I did, who, who provided, you know, for everything that we needed. And he, you know, he, he did come from a family that had got themselves in a lot of trouble. But he was just another bloke. And he, and he was actually a very polite and respectful bloke. Not, not, not if you're on the receiving end of a bullet from him, of course. And I fully understand and respect the impact of that on the victims. But in terms of on a personal level, he was not someone that I found hard to, to deal with at all. He was, he was one of the, the easiest and, and, and most respectful clients I've ever had. You've represented a lot of police officers at varying ranks, uh, accused of all manner of things. Uh, are they harder to defend? No. I wouldn't say so. I, I, it's a very interesting phenomenon representing police officers, and I spent a lot of my career doing that, particularly over the last decade or so. Um, one of the things that happens perhaps in my earlier career is that you often, you, you know, certain police officers or certain types of police officers are very antagonistic towards defence lawyers. You know, they see us as, you know, the, the enemy and, 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 you know, an example of all that's wrong with society, whereas they see themselves as, you know, on a pedestal of virtue, you know, kind of putting people away. And, and of course, many of them are doing that and they do a really important job. But, they, but they're quite negative in their judgment about defence lawyers until they're in trouble. And then suddenly the whole paradigm for them changes and we become the person who is going to get them through it and get, and get them through to the other side. 
safely to the other side. And, and I have to say that those police officers I represent from, as you say, rank of chief constable on a number of occasions, right down to more junior officers, although predominantly more senior officers in my case, um, they, they, they are actually, they are extremely polite and they are, they are generally speaking, willing to listen carefully to advice. They're used to taking orders and instructions in their job, unless they're the chief constable, in which case they're used to giving them all the time. But, but they're used to taking, you know, they're used to taking advice and discipline and so on from more senior people in their whole career. And they see, they come and sit down with me, particularly now that I'm a QC and have been, as you know, for a number of years. And they are very respectful of the advice that I give them. So I actually think that they are one of the easier categories of clients to represent. Um, I, I, the hardest category of clients to represent are, are white collar criminals or alleged white collar criminals. And the reason is because many of them, no matter what they've done, don't see it as being wrong. So they have no insight at all. Whereas an armed robber is never going to say armed robbery is okay. Going into a bank with a shotgun and shooting someone or shooting the ceiling, that's fine. That's not a bad thing. People who have done the most obvious fraudulent behavior will often say, well, there's nothing wrong with it. It's nothing wrong. Everyone's doing it or, you know, or it's the government's fault because they've made the regulations too complicated. It's not my fault that I line my pockets and so on. So, so often sort of white collar clients are, are more difficult and they can be the ones who will walk away at the end of a trial having been acquitted and, and not even say goodbye. And so, so it's very interesting. It's not necessarily the public might be the hard ones to sit down with. Most people think are going to be the more dangerous and violent people. Often that's not the case at all. Uh, and police officers are, I have to say, amongst the more, more easy, or well, they can be very challenging cases, but they are amongst the most respectful and, 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 and polite clients that I ever represent. There's, I mean, there's too many to read out, but, you know, it, they're also so varied. Um, you know, in terms of fraud, how difficult are they to explain to a jury? And we're talking about 200, you know, 200 million being sent abroad via money transferred sector. Some of the amounts of money are just staggering, 100 million, um, 10 million, uh, um, staggering amounts of money. And obviously very, very, very complex ways of trying not to be detected. How do you defend someone against the prosecution and explain to a jury, which is, you know, generally going to be a cross-section of society ranking from, you know, A, Bs, 1s to C, 3s or whatever, whatever the classification may be. How do you go about doing that? Well, the, the, you asked me earlier about one of the, you know, what one of the important qualities of, for, for my job. And, we, and I talked about empathy and I talked about the ability to understand the human condition. Um, another really important quality when you're talking about criminal law and jury trials is the ability to simplify complex things and make them accessible to anyone. So, so I, my objective, and, and, and it's become a more focused objective as I kind of moved along in my career, but my objective is to take the most complicated case, which might have a million or two million pages of documents around it, and sometimes even more than that. I've done cases with four or five or six million pages. My, my job is obviously I can't read all those pages any, anyway, but my, my job is to make the case fit onto one piece of paper. So if I, if I can't explain the case or have one of my team explain it to me, if someone's briefing me on a case at an early stage, if, if I can't get the case down in its essential elements to a single sheet of paper, then I'm not doing my job. 
So any case that I'm involved in, generally speaking, comes down to psychology. It comes down to what people knew or didn't know at a particular time. And often in fraud cases, the evidence is built on emails and other forms of communication. You know, that's how the prosecution proves its case because they prove that the finance director told the managing director that he was planning on holding, withholding certain information in the accounts and so on. So, so it's, it often comes down to, you know, that, that level of, um, you know, kind of simplicity. Who knew what and when? And, and, and really most cases are not as complicated to, to once you kind of break down, down to their core elements, they're not as complicated as they look on the face of it. Um, and, and so, but that's an absolutely essential part of my job is to make what seems complicated to a jury or to a layperson actually quite straightforward and simple and explain it in the terms that anyone can understand. Uh, and I, I, you know, I see that as a, as a challenge. You know, my closing speech to the jury, one of the things that I talk about, certainly I used to talk about a lot in terms of alibi cases, I used to give an example of when my dad believed he'd seen me driving by his house I knew I wasn't because I've been in court 50 miles away and he was convinced it was me. And so it's by telling the, you know, and, and so as an example of mistaken identification, even my own dad was 100% sure that he had seen me earlier that day. And when I was 100% sure and had a really good alibi, which was a high court judge and a, and a courtroom full of people, I knew it wasn't me, but my dad was convinced it was. So telling a jury kind of simple, true stories about the real world is a way to make accessible even that which might be complicated and i use similar examples i remember in a massive fraud case a huge bank fraud case i remember telling the jury a story about when i worked in a chip shop as a teenager because it, it explained completely the defense case which was this bank didn't have written down procedures my client was a senior bank manager who worked for a major bank and, and our defense was he was he what no one told him not to do it the way he did it so the story i told was you know even working in a chip shop there was a thing on the back of the fryer telling you what temperature the fryer should be at and this bank doesn't have anything written down to tell my client how to do his job so even you know you really simple kind of accessible examples of of you know stories of things that happened in my real life i use those to simplify and illustrate um you know the cases that i'm involved in Two, two really fundamentally important questions, and I'll go, go heavy first. I met a guy in India. His name was Mr. Khan. That wasn't his real name. He admitted on camera, and we had pretty good reason to believe that what he said was true, that he killed over 350 young girls. He was a sex trafficker um, in the Sundarbans. And I could... It's, it's, it's witnessed. It's on camera. It's on two cameras as he says it, and my reaction, he starts to cry. He starts to feel sorry for himself. And I wanted to kill him. I wanted to kill him there and then, and it's a human reaction. And particularly the fact that he felt sorry for himself and the fact that he was probably going to carry on doing what he was doing. And I had no control and no power over uh, stopping him because he was in cahoots with local police, et cetera. Um, and, and we made a promise to hide his identity, which I, I, you know, I had to keep. Um, that man, I believe, is truly evil. Now, it may be because of his circumstances, he may have been abused as a child, but the fact that he knew what he was doing, he was prepared to carry on doing it, and he knew that it was wrong, and he felt sorry for himself, he put his neck before 300 young women, that, I think, is evil. 
The acts are evil, undoubtedly. My, my, I, my perspective on it is that I don't see it as helpful in the analysis of the human condition to split people off into the evil camp because it, it, what matters is not the label that you apply to the individual, but what you do about the individual and what you do about it. And in, in that case, obviously there's a cause, you know, the biggest issue for me in the whole of the um, story you've just told me is the bit where he's immune from being stopped because he's in cahoots with law enforcement. That's the problem. And so law enforcement should be there to step in, to take people like that off the streets and to keep young women safe. But I don't think you need to go down the route of calling him evil in order to get there. And I don't think it really helps very much if you do. So, so the acts are evil. What he does is incredibly and terribly wrong, as has been the acts of many of those I've come across over the years, although I don't think I've ever met someone who killed uh, 300 people. I met Harold Chipman's wife, but not Harold Chipman. Um, but, um, but, but, but I just don't find it a helpful way of looking at the world. And therein, as you say in the book, and you quote Dotty, uh, that, that, that we all have the potential to commit evil acts. Every human being has that potential. Yeah, it's built into the human condition because we are ultimately simple creatures. Um, but we're simple creatures who are also subject to extremely complex uh, impacts from mental health conditions, for example, from substance abuse, uh, from sociopathy and psychopathy, which are conditions that are perhaps not uh, fully understood um, and, and, and maybe never will be. So, so there are some people who simply don't have the equipment to discern between or, or to feel any empathy for other people. You know, so, sociopaths stroke psychopaths are, 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 are out there and, and they need to be controlled, they need to be contained because the danger they represent, but they haven't chosen to be a sociopath. You know, it's no more a choice to, to, to become a sociopath than it is a choice to become, you know, a, a person who naturally is extremely empathetic and kind. You know, we all know people who are naturally extremely kind and who, who, who will always put others first. We also know people, and perhaps, you know, I don't know what you're like, or I make no judgment, but we also know people who kind of see the world largely from their own perspective and, and, and are much less thoughtful. But those are not qualities that were chosen deliberately. That doesn't mean that you don't recognize the kindness when, it's, when, it, when, you, when, you, when someone is kind to you, or that you don't kind of, you know, point, point out if someone's behaving selfishly, particularly if it's your own children, and you kind of try and help them away from some of those behavior patterns. But much of that is beyond our individual control. And so I just don't feel that there is any more value in creating someone to be a saint and to hold them up as a saint than there is to hold certain people up as so evil that they're, you know, that they, they, they should either be put down or, 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 or treat as a different species. It just doesn't help. I don't, I don't see where it gets you. And I don't, I, I think, I think, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I, but I totally understand the mindset that, you know, and I, and I, I'll give you a sort of sneak preview of the paperback because a paperback edition comes out in the summer, and I've done an interview with one of the people who was shot by Tundi and Adatoro in the last week. And he, he, he's met Adatoro. He's met the man who shot him. And he's given me permission to talk about it in the book, uh, in, the, in the paperback update. Uh, and, and he, the last words that he said to me was, having gone through that experience of meeting someone who really could have killed him and, and who, who caused him physical harm and destroyed his life for many years, he said, there but for the grace of God go I. 
Now that that he was a religious man, and that was his religious perspective. But I think we could, we all have a lot to learn from those sentiments, and and, and I think those who 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 place themselves in a glass house uh, really re, really shouldn't throw stones. Chris, your story so far um, is intriguing, interesting. All I can say is thank you for being so honest. Not at all. I would expect you to to be um, very good at talking to people and and transferring information. But I think what comes over, maybe it is all part of the smoke and mirrors, but I don't think it is, is there's a genuine honesty about you and um, the deconstruction of, of the criminal justice system um, was, was just fascinating. So can I just thank you very, very much. Really interesting to talk to you. And hopefully, please, can we talk again? I'd love to, Ross, and thanks for having me. It's been, it's been fascinating and it's made me think. So, you know, if that's part of your job, which I guess it is, then, then you've done it really well. And it's been a really interesting chat. And uh, I hope that people listening to it and maybe watching it on your YouTube channel will, uh, will, 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 will get some interest in it as well. I just hope that when you do talk to me next, it, it's not in a police cell. Or, 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 or in the basement cells of the Old Bailey. Certainly not. That would make a good documentary, wouldn't it? Let, you know, Ross Kemp, Charles with Murder. One of his former interviewees is his defence lawyer. That'd be, that would be a documentary I would be unwilling to make, sir. But it'd be a glorious not guilty verdict at the end, Ross. So, oh, well, that's as you guarantee that, Chris. Pretty much. Don't, no, actually, don't take that away with you. No, Ross, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Kempcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Kemp and on Instagram at Ross Kemp TV. This has been a Freshwater and the Chance of Collective production. And until the next episode, goodbye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.